It's a blessing to be here today. It's a blessing to have Hannah and Dustin's entire family here. Welcome. And um, just to be gathered together in the name of the Lord. If you would, turn to the book of Ruth. We're going to continue our study in Ruth. chapter 2 is where we will be today. I'd like to go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you, God, um, for a beautiful day and for your many blessings to us. And even in the midst of pain, um, I thank you that Jeremy's able to be here with us today, that he would have a heart to fellowship with your people. I pray for his continued recovery. I pray that you would grant him strength both physically as he needs to recover but also spiritually as as times um, even when the physical brings struggles spiritually sometimes I just pray that you would grant him strength in both areas and the same for Pastor Randy God um, I pray God that uh, Lord you would ease his pain his physical pain that you would help him to utilize the time um, that he could spend time with you and that he would um, he, he would use it for much needed rest as well. Pray for Ronnie and Randy on their way back from Ireland. I thank you for the trip that you have provided there. Pray for the people of Ireland, God, that you would do a work there as you've done before, that you would do a work here, God, that you would use your people to proclaim your gospel, that people would be saved. And I pray now as we look at this scripture as we study this this passage that you would help us to understand your glory help us to understand your providence and how we should respond to that in jesus name i pray amen it is saint patrick's day today that's interesting ronnie and randy are in ireland on saint patrick's day that's a day another one of those days where you have a very um a um very bold witness for Christ gets a pagan holiday named after him. So it's interesting. If you if you're curious about who Saint Patrick was, he was actually a Christian from Britain, not from Ireland, but he went to Ireland and God used him in a mighty way to proclaim the gospel there. Um, so it's it's an interesting thing. It's always interesting to know those things because they're great witnessing opportunities. Somebody comes up and pinches you because you didn't wear green. You get to tell them about what it's really about. It's an opportunity to share Christ with them. So Isaiah's got his green on, if anybody's wondering. So, um, but we're in the book of Ruth uh, today in chapter 2. Kind of back up and just give an overview of what we have seen so far. Um, Naomi and her husband Elimelech left the land of Israel because of famine. They left their homeland and they moved away to Moab in order to find food or, or better provisions, better life, whatever it was. And when they got there, it, it certainly appears that that was not the, the pleasing thing to God. But when they got there, tragedy struck. And 
Elimelech died. Both of, Ruth, or both of Naomi's sons had married Moabite women while they were there, and both of her sons then died. So it was, uh, it was Naomi and her two daughter-in-laws, one of which was Ruth, um, left there. And Naomi heard that there was a lot of, that the, the famine was over in Israel, the barley harvest was great, and so she was going to move home in hopes of finding food. They were starving. They were literally starving to death. Um, as times in, that, in this time period were, there was no, um, it was not the same as it is now. Starvation, well, it's the same as it is in some places, though. Starvation was a real thing. And so she was going to move back. She told her daughter-in-laws to stay here. You don't go. I don't have any more sons. There is no more, there's no provisions for you. I cannot provide you with a husband. If you come back, you're leaving everything you know. Um, And one of them stayed, and Ruth, if you remember, clung to Naomi. And she made the statement, I am going to go where you go. I'm going to devote myself to you. And she said, your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. She she had a turn in her heart at some point in her life. And she, she proclaimed the true God as God, the God of Israel. And so when they came back, um, that's kind of where we, um, where we arrive to now. Um, they have arrived back in Israel. And it's actually the city of Bethlehem which you probably recognize that name. And that's not by accident. That's God's providence that this is happening in Bethlehem. So they arrive back in Bethlehem, and they're not exactly sure what's going to happen. Naomi left and was gone for a long time, and she is now husbandless and um, doesn't have any sons. And so that's a scary place to be in this time and in this society. The men were the provisions. And so when she comes back, she's not exactly what she's going to return to. And if you picture Ruth, who is a Moabite, um, she has no idea how the people of Israel are going to receive her. Right? She's an outsider. She's a foreigner. She doesn't have a husband to protect her. She doesn't have a covering. Um, so she's going on faith that this is going to work out. And that's kind of where we wind up at the first part of chapter 2. So if, let's look at it. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So here we get introduced to a character that we haven't seen yet. And it's, it's kind of just like this foreshadowing the author is using. It's kind of like, okay, now watch for this guy. If you're watching it, if you're if you're reading a, a full narrative of this, it would be kind of like, you know, some, if you and most people probably know the story of Ruth a little bit, so you kind of know what's going to happen. But if you were reading this for the first time, you'd never read this before, and you hit, you see this, you're like, huh, that's weird, Boaz. Okay, what's this mean? If you don't know the tradition, if you don't know the history of it, and just seeing it for the first time, it's kind of a introduction foreshadowing of this character that's going to become very important in the in the narrative and so it gives a little bit of a description of Boaz it says he's a worthy man and when the Hebrew the the Hebrew language here um, would, would explain it a little deeper than what the English language does 
Basically, he was a man of excellent standing socially. He was also wealthy. Just by, just by this, this passage, we can understand that he was extremely well thought of. Um, he had the respect of the people of Bethlehem. He was also wealthy. He, was, he was, um, had land. He had provisions. He was probably also politically connected. He was important in a political standing. We will see that later when they go to the gates. And the gates is where the business of the kind of politics took place. It was kind of a, the, the pillars of the community would do business in the gates. And we'll see that as we go on through. And so, in short, we would consider him powerful. He was a noble. He was somebody with uh, pull. He had connections. He had, he had stroke, we would say today. He was a powerful man in both um, socially and financially. And it said he belonged to the clan of Elimelech. And so this is important to understand the clan. A clan was a group of people within a tribe. You had... We had the tribe, and in this case, it's the tribe of Judah. Um, and then within that, you had immediate families like we do today. But it, it so a clan is kind of like an extended family, um, and and the clan was extremely important for the Israelites in this time, maintaining it because it under the law there were lots of provisions made um, that if somebody dies then somebody in the clan is to take care of that person. And it was all about maintaining the name of the clan, fulfilling the requirement or the, um, like carrying on the family name, those kind of things. And so Boaz, we know up front, is part of Elimelech's clan. But keep in mind this. As we go through this narrative, Ruth does not know that. I don't think Ruth is aware of who exactly she's talking to when they first meet. Um, and so that's important to kind of know as an overview. So verse 1 is kind of like this introduction to what's about to happen, kind of an introduction to the character, so we have an idea of who we're talking about when Boaz and Ruth meet. Now, as we go through this first part of chapter 2, there's a lot of things in Ruth. Um, there's a lot of higher-level spiritual connections that we're going to get, spiritual foreshadowings, um, types of Christ, types of the gospel in here. And there's also some really applicable physical things that we're going to see. In this section that we're going to see now, we're going to see more of that. We're going to see more of the character of the actual people that we're dealing with. Um, so we're going to see the what Ruth was like. We're going to see what Boaz was like. We're going to understand kind of how the culture worked. And then that will, for the next few sermons, that will feed into the higher, the, the spiritual foreshadowing and everything that we see in Ruth. So, verse 2. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. And so 
if you're just reading through the narratives, it looks like this happens rather quickly when they come back. They get there. Now, why would she have to do that rather quickly? They're starving. they got to get out there to the field and get some food because they're hungry. And this is serious. And so there's not much time to rest, even though a long journey like that took a lot out of them. But it looks like rather quickly she's going to go do that. And she brings it up to Naomi and says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears. And then it says, in whose sight I shall favor. Now, if you'll turn to Leviticus chapter 19, we will actually see... this in the law. Leviticus 19, verse 9, it says, When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edges. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am... The Lord your God. So what gleaning was, and I think probably most people know this, it was actually the process of gathering up the remaining grain after the main harvest. And God commanded his people not to, you're not going to harvest the whole field. And something that's interesting, it's so hard for me to picture it the way it was then, because I picture agriculture with fences and boundaries and things like that. Um, surveyors come in and mark the corners and that's where you go. Well, it was a little different then. Um, if, if I had a field and this was my field and Cody had a field that was bordering it, we weren't going to waste any room with fences. We were gonna, it was going to be open and we were going we to know where it was. So if I know where my field is and I, I'm going to leave the edges and then he leaves the edges too, well, then there's a little wider swath in between fields to harvest, right? It's interesting as well that God, when he, does, when he gives this in Leviticus, when he gives the law, he doesn't say how big the edges are, right? He leaves it kind of subjective. Why? Is God's purpose in his law not always been about the heart, the heart of the issue? And so do you think in the time of Ruth, in the time of Boaz, some people left bigger edges than others? Absolutely. I guarantee you that some thought, well, he said leave the edges. I mean, that's the edges, right? I mean, do you think, I mean, has man changed? Is man's heart any different now than it is now? Do people still have the same attitude Today, Well, he didn't say necessarily I give this much. I don't, I don't necessarily have to give 10% to God. But who, is, who, who in the field is actually gaining the heart of the law? The one who's leaving, the one who's looking for the short side or the long side? And I truly believe here, as we see Ruth go in, I think she's probably rather smart. She's also not an Israelite, so she has no idea which field to go to. What would you do? 
I'd look for the one with the bigger edges. Right? I mean, I'm walking along, and that guy didn't leave much. That one over there has got twice as much. Maybe I'll go to that one. I just, that's, that's, some, that's some inference. That's, that's, not, that's a little extra biblical there. But I, I believe that's, that very possibly could have been the case here as Ruth goes into looking for the fields. But he, he tells them to leave the edges. Um, and there's some other things that we can get out of this. God commanded the landowners to leave it for the purpose of caring for the poor. And, and I thought about our system in today's society, in our country, compared to God's system. In both practices, in the way that we care for poor in our government, and the way that they cared for the poor in Israel, somebody has to give up something to provide for somebody else, right? But there's a major difference, too. The major difference is, in God's economy, the people that are getting it, what do they have to do? They still have to go work. They still have to go get it. And it saves a little bit of work on the person who's growing it. The comparison to then versus now, now it would be the government says, no, you have to go harvest all of it. And then you're going to give this much to the poor. And God's economy says, no, you leave a little bit and they can go harvest it, harvest it themselves. Why? I think Paul said it. If a man doesn't work, neither should he eat. Hard work is not a bad thing. And this, this is something that we have got to understand as Christians in this culture. Because I see it as... And I see it with parents, with their children. I see it with kids, and I see it now with adults, that work is like this bad thing. I remember hearing um, preaching when I was young about, and no, I mean, most kids don't like to, you know, I mean, you're going you're gonna to have to make them work, right? You're going to have to tell them, no, you don't have to make them play a video game, but you have to make them work. Why? Because you have to train them because it's a hard thing to do. But I remember hearing the preaching that would say, and it would, like my dad, I heard him say it a lot. You know, I really don't mind working. I just don't like getting tired. And I thought, huh, that's really true. The pain that comes with work, I don't like. Getting tired and getting hurt, you know, Jeremy can attest to that. I'm sure it was some kind of work that caused the problem in the first place. Those things are not fun but the work itself is a very good thing. You notice even before the fall of man, God planted a garden and told Adam to tend the garden. How awesome would it be to tend the garden without weeds? That'd be fun. That would be enjoyable, right? So, so it's important that we understand in God's system, in God's requirements, there's no out for work. I mean, obviously, disability would be another issue. But if, if uh, somebody is able to do this, then they should do it. And, and that is a way that he provided that. So that's almost like a side note to, to, the, main, to, to the main narrative here. Um, so she, 
that's what gleaning is. Gleaning, and, and it included two things. It included getting the edges that God had told them to leave. And it also included going along and picking up anything that they missed in the main harvest or like if anything fell out of the basket or, or when they're carrying the, the grain, anything that falls on the ground. Now, if you've ever been around like a wheat field, this one's particularly, they're talking about barley harvest, which is very similar to wheat. Um, even if you harvest it by hand, they would hold the, the heads of wheat or barley and then they would cut it off. And they would do that until they held as much as they could. Then they would lay it in rows to become, somebody else would come and pick it up. That's how they harvested it. They're not dropping a lot, Right? They're grabbing it. So the gleaning process was a hard process. It was not, it was much, anybody ever pick green beans in here? Yeah? Yeah, good. Because I think this is a good illustration of how this works. I love picking green beans. Well, no, I never love picking green beans. Let me, let me take that back. I like it a lot more when it's a great big full bush with a whole bunch of beans. You know why? Because it takes the same amount of work to pick them when it's full as when they're barely there, right? You still have to bend over. You still have to search. And then you, you're, it's, it doesn't take a whole lot more time to pick three times as much when they're full. Well, the gleaners aren't getting to do the full picking. They're coming along behind and picking what you left. But it's the same amount of work. They're still having to bend down. They're still having to, to hunch over. They're still out in the heat. It takes about the same amount of time, maybe more, because they're having to search for it, and they get a whole lot less in their basket when they're finished. So just keep that in mind as we look and see what is going on as we go through the rest of this. Now, we, we're not told why Naomi doesn't go to the field, but I'm sure that it has something to do with her age, um, her weariness from the travel. She may not be able because of her age. Um, but she does send her daughter-in-law. And so the fact that the writer... Now, as we look at this, the writer here calls Ruth the Moabite. And this happens, I think, about five different times. She's referred to as Ruth the Moabite or the Moabitess. And I don't think that is insignificant um, in this story because we... I don't know that we can understand how much of a outsider she was in the land of Israel... You're talking about a people that were extremely, extremely loyal to their tribes, to their clans, to their heritage. And, and you, you see it later on. The Gentiles was about the worst thing you could call somebody. Well, Ruth was a Gentile, right? So we want to keep that in mind as we go through here. She is an outsider in a foreign land. And she's unattached in a very patriarchal culture. She has no protection. Um, no father to protect her, no husband to protect her. And so when she goes out there by herself, I'm sure she felt at great risk, right? I mean, figure, figure a, I mean, you can figure it in a racial, racial sense in our culture. Somebody of one race going into a predominantly, you know, neighborhood, Whatever it is. I mean, it could be you go down into a Hispanic neighborhood. You go into the inner cities. Um, uh, perfect example in uh, the movie um, Blindside. 
when the mother that had adopted the, the son, she went over to, it was in Memphis, and she went into the bad part of town. She stood out, right? She looked different. Everybody knew she's not from here. And would there be fear involved with that? Now, we don't see any kind of bad feelings. It may have been, um, it may have been unrealistic fear, but you would still have it. So I just want to make sure that we understand kind of a big deal this was to go by herself in this area. Um, and so let's move on to verse 3 here, back in Ruth chapter 2. Verse 3, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, she doesn't know that. She, doesn't, she just comes to this field. And it's, it's interesting the language it used here. And she just happened to come there. It's almost like it says by chance she comes there. And I think that's um, just for the emphasis of the story. I mean, you have all of these fields. And by chance, Ruth comes across the field of Boaz. And, of course, we know this is not by chance. It's by chance as far as she's concerned. The, the point that's made here is she didn't know she was looking for Boaz. She didn't know she was looking for this field that Boaz was a, was in the same clan as her father-in-law. No, she just finds this one. And, of course, we know that God's providentially working through all of this, behind it. He's bringing her there. Um, and, of course... It's no accident. I mean, we know that. Um, and, and then as we look on, look on in verse 4 and 5. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? So, when it's just interesting to, to try to get the picture, try to get the, the idea and, and visualize what's going on. So Ruth comes out to this field. She doesn't know whose it is. And we're going to see exactly kind of what or an idea of what happens there. But then, by chance, Boaz comes along too. I mean, I don't know how many fields he has. I don't know how often he's checking each field. But she's there. And then he comes. And this is obviously providential. This is God bringing two people together that is in the plan from before the foundation of the world to bring these two people together. It's no accident that Ruth the Moabitess is in Israel gleaning, using the law that God has provided as a way to provide for herself and her mother-in-law. This is all in God's providence. And when he comes up, you can kind of picture the, the, the servants out there um, harvesting the wheat, and Boaz shows up. And I, I picture him on riding an animal or a cart or something because he was wealthy, he was noble, he probably wasn't walking. I don't know. So he comes up, though, and he, and he gives them this greeting in the name of the Lord. He said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. And I think we're seeing here that Boaz is indeed a man of God. He comes and he addresses his servants in a godly way. 
and they respond to him as servants. And these are not slaves, by the way. These are probably hired servants. But um, they respond to him in a way that is endearing, right? God bless you, you know. He treats his people well. You can tell that, and you'll see it even more as we go through. As we go through. And then in verse 5, Boaz said to his young man, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And this is where this, the storyline starts to kind of get interesting. Starts to, we start to see these two people coming together. Um, she catches his eye, the eye of Boaz. And we don't really know why. It doesn't give us a reason why she catches his eye. It could be that she's just the one he's never seen before. Well, who's the, who's this? Or but or it could be that he's noticed um, something about her. Maybe he's attracted to her. Maybe she is physically attractive enough for him to say, "Who's this?" We don't know. But she does. He does notice her, and he asks, "Whose young woman is this?" And it's an interesting terminology, right? Whose young woman is this? Who does she belong to in a sense? In other words, who is she married to or who is her father? And he's going to find out that she, there is no of the who's. She has no one. Um, and verse 6, that's the answer. The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. And there it is again. She's referred to as the Moabite. And the way he responds, I think, shows that no doubt Boaz would have known who he was talking about. I think probably by this point, everybody in Bethlehem probably knew who, who this was. Remember when Naomi came back and there, the people were, there was women and they were really excited. Naomi's back. And so the word spread quickly that she was back. And just like it would today, just like it did then, just like it has all through history, people talk, right? Hey, y'all hear Naomi's back and she's got a Moabite girl with her? I mean, that's how it goes. And pretty soon everybody knows. So evidently the servant knew the way he says it. Evidently um, Boaz knew exactly what was happening to us. Big news. In verse 7, he's going to tell us what uh, Ruth's purpose is there. What is going on? He says, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. And here is where there's some differences between the way that Ruth acted and the way any other of the other gleaners would have acted. It was law that they were allowed to glean. There was no request necessary. It was law for the field landowners to leave it, leave the edges, leave it on the ground, so that they could be, um, so that they could come in. It was a provision for the poor. So they did not have to have permission to do that. It was their right. But if you back up to verse 3, or verse, verse 2, actually, when Ruth first said to Naomi, 
Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. She was not going to go exercise her right unless she found favor with the one who owned the field. I think this shows a great humility. Um, the, the terminology there that she's actually using to find favor is a phrase that was used. It, first, it was used a lot with military terminology, but I don't think that I think the idea here is when any subordinate was speaking to or about a superior, they would use this kind of language. And, and but it was more than common courtesy. It was like the subordinate acknowledged full dependence on the superior for that which was requested. So we need to remember that. She was like, I will find favor. I will glean from a field only if I am fully dependent. I I realize my position is that I am fully dependent on this person. Whoever owns this field, I submit that I am nothing and he is everything as far as my provisions go. It's a full submission. She would not glean without permission from the owner of the field. Her success and her survival was dependent on the will of the field owner. So you think about that. When she approached the reapers of Boaz's field, there was great humility. There was great courage that came with it. I mean, when she's walking up, if they reject her, what's she going to do? She's going to have to go to the next field. When you're starving, when you are malnourished, every time you have to walk from one field to another is a step. Every step you take is a step closer to death. I mean, this, this was a dire situation. And so she was dependent on somebody to say, yes, you can do that. Um, would they embrace her or would they run her off as an outsider? She didn't know. She didn't know what was going to happen. But God took her. And what would have happened if she would have went to the field next door? It could have been very well that. She was not protected the way a Jewish woman would have been protected. She was not the protected the way that a Jewish family would have been protected coming in to glean. She, she didn't have that provision. She was an outsider. And so God took her to the right field. And then the last part of the verse shows us something else. She was persistent. And, and this is, it gets a little confusing there when you look at the, when you look at the verse. When, when, I read, when I read it my whole life, I would read through this, and I thought she just went to work. But the next verse, it's, Ruth was right there. Boaz speaks to Ruth. I think what actually happened was she was not going to work until she had the permission, the blessing of the landowner. The servant who was in charge of the reapers did not have the authority to grant her that. And she asked even specifically, she asked if she could please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. The sheaves were the things that were stacked up. And so she was, I think she was asking for a higher provision. I think she was asking that she could go and get in a place where the other gleaners weren't. But she wasn't going to do any of this until she had the permission 
of the blessing of the landowner. The servant who was in charge of the reapers didn't have the authority to give her that. And so when Boaz comes up, the servant tells her what happens, and she's continued. So that means I think she's been right there with the servant. She's been right there with the reapers, but she's not gleaning. She was persistent. And it caught the attention of the servant. And now it has caught the attention of Boaz. And so some of the characteristics we see in Ruth at this point, we see courage, we see humility, and we see persistence. And I think those are good, godly characteristics that we all need to be seeking after. Now, now look at verse 8. So as Ruth awaits Boaz's answer, it is a pivotal point in the story. Before we get to verse 8, we're at the pivotal point. Ruth has been waiting. Ruth has went out looking for somebody to favor her, let her glean in the fields, let her get the provisions that she needs for her and her mother-in-law. And now here he comes. She has no idea who he is, but she knows he's noble. She knows he's worthy. I mean, she can tell that he is wealthy. He owns land, so he's wealthy. He comes, and here it is. This is like the moment. This is the moment of truth, right? How would this upright nobleman respond to this foreigner? Would he rebuke her and send her away as a foreigner? Or would he lovingly embrace her need? Verse 8, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. And so when we're looking at this in the earthly sense, Boaz has mercy. Boaz has a tender heart. He sees her and he says, he he uses this endearing term of my daughter. Put yourself in Ruth's shoes. She's starving. She's scared. She's doing everything what appears to be the right way. And she's just waiting now this guy going to do and she doesn't hear get out of here you Moabite she hears my daughter what a blessing what a relief right oh yes stay here stay here glean this field don't go to these other fields and it goes on it gets better Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Let your eyes be on the field. You can focus completely on what you are doing because you are under my protection now. She goes, she went in an instance from being without a head without a cover, without support, to having now this nobleman, this wealthy landowner say, you are protected. Have I not, the young men will not touch you. I don't know exactly all the things that went on in the culture, but I can only imagine in these times when when the nobleman wasn't there and the fields were just, it was just servants and gleaners out there that it would probably get pretty rough right people haven't changed in that area either 
There's a little patch over here that they missed. Is there any chance two starving people will fight over food? Is there any chance that the young men will push a young woman around when she doesn't have anybody protect her to make sure they get their food? Is there any other more wicked things could go on? Of course there was. She was going to have to be watching her back all the time. She's a Moabite. She's going to have to watch out. These, Who knows what's going to happen? She's going to be gleaning with one hand and watching with the other, you know, one eye on the field, one eye on her back. And he says, don't worry about that. You focus on what you're doing because I have told them not to touch you. And wow, have things turned around now. It is amazing on what one kind thing from somebody can do for somebody else. But there's much, much greater than this. We'll see it more as we go through the story, but I'm going to go ahead and skip ahead a little bit. Boaz is a picture of Christ. And we are a picture of Ruth. We have no head. We were wandering around with, no, we, were a, we, we were a foreigner. We have no direction. We were lost. We had no provisions. We come to a field looking for something, looking for the wrong thing usually. And there is one that comes and says, my son or my daughter. Are you under that provision today? Have you sought that favor from Christ? The great nobleman, the great landowner, the one who is worthy. Boaz is a mere picture. Boaz was not actually worthy. He was a picture of the one who is worthy. Have you sought that? Have you bowed a knee to that? Have you come under his protection? Have you come under his authority? Have you submitted like Ruth did to anybody who would have favor on you? Well, there's one who does. And he will provide. He will provide everything you need in this life and the next. He says, let your eyes be on the field. And just take that another step. Let your eyes be on the field. Right? He's provided what we need. Let our eyes be on the harvest. We'll see it later. Jesus teaches about it. He compares the evangelism of the world to the harvest, right? It's white with harvest. And let us put our eyes on that, and he'll take care of the other stuff. He's provided our protection. Anything that happens is under his authority, is under his control. And then he says, he's charged them not to touch you. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So he doesn't seem to employ her here. He, he leaves her as gleaning. But he now has given her the, the ability to go over and his servants are drawing up water. There were certain jobs that people did. One of the jobs was they would draw water from the well and have it there for when the the reapers, the harvesters, got thirsty, they would come drink. Well, the gleaners didn't have that. The gleaners would have to go draw their own water 
and drink it. And every bit of that energy and every bit of that time is time that they're not able to glean. He says, you don't have to worry about that either. I'm going to provide that as well. And then in verse 10, we see Ruth's response. And I think our response should be the same. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Oh, and is that not a picture of us? Can we not see ourselves in the mirror of Ruth right now? Why in the world would God Almighty, Jesus Christ, why would he leave his throne in heaven, come down here, suffer and die on a cross for me, a foreigner, for me, a Gentile, the lowest of the lows. Why would he do that? Why would you take notice of me? She got more than she expected. She asked, why? Why? I think the humility in her response is the humility that we should seek to model. In verse 11, Boaz answers her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Why did, why did Boaz on this earth have favor on Ruth? Her reputation had preceded her. Her actions that she had done, and actually it, it was because of her turn to the true God, He had noticed. He had taken note in that. And it was, she doesn't know it yet, but she had done this on behalf of his kin. We don't know exactly the relationship between Boaz and Elimelech, but we know it it was pretty close. I don't know. I don't think they were brothers, Um, but, but it was close. And he had a responsibility to that. And Ruth was caring for his kin and probably a lot of us have experienced something similar to that maybe it's somebody afar off a family member or somebody that you cared for and they got into a situation when you couldn't help because you weren't there and somebody else did it's endearing you respect that you love that person you may not know them but you love them because of what they did for your loved one. I know if you've ever had children and that's happened to your children, I know it's especially evident. Right? And that's what so that's his response. It didn't matter her country of origin. It didn't matter that she was Moabite. It didn't matter her past. What matters here was her integrity and her actions. And it's important for us to remember that too. Naomi, or Ruth didn't do this. She did not turn to Naomi for any sort of reward. No, it was she knew full well that it was going to cost her. But she did it out of her love for God and her love for Naomi. And 
we must remember as Christians that people are noticing how we act and how we react to situations. Just we need to keep that in mind because it is a reflection on our character, which is a reflection on our relationship with Christ. And then verse 12, he says, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord. And actually, the, the, I think the better translation here is the Lord, let the Lord repay you. It's almost like a prayer that I pray that the Lord will repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord. So it's this, it's this prayer. Boaz is very thankful for what Ruth has done for Naomi. And he's, it's almost like the prayer is, may God provide, may God restore and he doesn't, I don't know that he fully realizes, but I think he probably, have you ever been praying a prayer and while you're praying it, you realize that you may be the answer to the prayer? Has that ever happened to anybody? You're praying, oh God, I wish you would just send somebody to preach to the gospel to these people. Who would you send? Oh, maybe me, right? I think that's. Some of what was happening with Boaz here, right? Lord, I pray, I pray that the Lord will provide for you, Ruth. Hmm, how does the Lord usually provide? Usually through his people. And so he's going to go on and we're going to see that God definitely answers that prayer through Boaz. Um, and he's saying, as he says this, I think he's affirming. He is completely affirming her decision. Do you think there was any time when Ruth was leaving Moab and everything that she knew and the people that she knew and the land that she knew and everything that was going on. Do you think there was ever a time that she thought, did I mess up? Should I have stayed there? Am I going to starve to death? Are me and Naomi both going to starve to death on the way home or right here because we get back and we don't have any land and I can't glean enough or nobody will accept me? And Do you think there was ever any doubts? You know there was. We have doubts all the time, but here, and, and praise God because he affirms our decisions, and I think that's what he did here. He, basically, he's saying, you made the right decision. You're serving the right God. When you made the claim that her God would be your God, you are correct. He is God, and he is going to use Boaz to fully affirm that later on, and we'll close with Verse 13, as they, as they conclude their meeting together, Ruth says it like this. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So she's saying, you have been kind to me even though you didn't have to. You did not have to do this, and you are kind to me, and, and it is an amazing thing. And, and it's like, let me continue to find favor. I hope I am going to try. Thank you for your kindness. I am going to do everything I can to continue in this favor of yours, Boaz. Thank you. It's a, it's a thank you. I want to continue to please you. Um, and as we close, we don't really know when the idea comes into either one of their heads. You, you probably know the outcome of this. They're going to wind up married and under full provision. If you didn't, I just spoiled the story. Sorry. 
But we don't know when that idea came into their head, but I have a feeling it was here at the first meeting between the two. There was a thought. I just have this feeling he had a thought, she had a thought. Um, Ruth, at this point, I don't think knew that there was a possibility because of the law of her redeeming her. I think she probably just knew this man. It'd be like, this is the kind of guy I would want to marry, right? Kind, gentle, loving. And she did, but she didn't know that Boaz was in the clan through Elimelech. But know this, God knew. And he was beautifully orchestrating this meeting between the two out in a hot, dusty, dirty field. And just as he's always working to bring his plan together in our lives and the lives of our loved ones, he was working in theirs. And we can take comfort in this because we can see the end. We don't see it the way Ruth saw it with the fear. But with what's going on in your life right now, there is, you, you, don't, you don't get to see the end. We don't know exactly how the outcome is going to be. But as you read narrative after narrative in the Bible, there is always God working in it for what? For his good pleasure, for his good name. And to be a part of that is an honor. He's doing it now in each one of us. And we can always count on that he is going to provide and he is going to provide glory for himself. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, um, for what a, just a beautiful written story. And the thought of the reality of it. And these were real people and, and this really happened. And how amazing it is. How when you paint pictures, how beautiful they are. When you bring stories and people together, how beautiful your providence is through it. And I pray, God, that we would remember that as you're working in our lives. That we have, um, we have difficulties and we have times where it's hard to see past the front of our face and that we, we have a hard time seeing the end result, Lord, and we have a hard time seeking your glory in those things that you would remind us of these times where you will always get glory for yourself. And I, I just I pray, Lord, that um, we would continue to understand that through the rest of this book of Ruth. And um, I, I pray for any here who have not come under that covering, who have not bowed a knee to Christ, that today you would, you would just grant them repentance, that their heart would be softened, that their mind would be changed, and that they would cry out to Christ. And in his name I pray, amen.